Yes, hello, it's Jason Louve. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. My guest today is Steve Bergsman, author of the book, I Put a Spell on You, The Bizarre Life of Screamin' Jay Hawkins, the legendary rock musician and progenitor of the entire goth genre. As it says on the back of Bergsman's book, Screamin' Jay Hawkins was larger than life as he emerged from a coffin with a skull on a stick singing, I Put a Spell on You. With one song, Screamin' Jay, who studied piano and sang opera, became the embodiment of the voodoo-empowered black man feared by 1950s America, caught between a self-created myth and a nearly unbelievable truth. Which story is better? I Put a Spell on You brings together hundreds of interviews with Screamin' Jay, his family, and bandmates to weave a new tale of the life of this seminal rock and roll pioneer. Can the truth of Screamin' Jay Hawkins really be known? We're going to find out in this podcast. If you have enjoyed literally any good rock music in the last 50 years, everyone from Bauhaus to Kiss to Alice Cooper to The Cramps to lots, lots, lots more than you owe Screamin' Jay Hawkins a big thank you. So let's dive in and learn more about this Ur figure of rock and roll. But first, super quick, the new tarot course at Magic.me is going awesome. We are getting nothing but incredible feedback about it. It's a guided journey through the tarot with none other than legendary, and I do mean legendary, occult author, Lon Milo Duquette. But instead of me telling you about it, why don't I let Lon tell you about it? Here's Lon himself with just a, a few words about the course. Hello and welcome. I'm Lon Milo Duquette, and I'm delighted to invite you to a transformative journey into the magic of tarot. Whether you're a novice or a seasoned tarot reader, this course promises to en enrich your practice and ignite your spiritual aspirations and evolution. But we're not stopping with the tarot. We'll venture further into the beautiful world of the Kabbalah and learn about the spirits within each card and discover how we may interact with them. You can revisit the course whenever you wish, deepening your understanding each time you look at it and take part in it and interact with it. Now I understand that life can be very busy, and that's why this course is self-paced, and it's designed to fit in even with the busiest schedule. So thank you, and I look forward to guiding you on this incredible magical journey. All right, you can get that course along with our now almost 30 other courses at magic.me, my online school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can find it at www.magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. All right, I will see you in class. And without any further ado, here is Steve Bergsman. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. I'm excited to talk to you about your book about Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Uh, why don't we kick this off? You just want to talk a little bit about your book and what was it that... Well, let, let's start this off, actually. Why don't you say who Screamin' Jay Hawkins was? Because not everyone not everyone knows, uh, surprisingly. Actually, a lot of people don't know Screamin' Jay Hawkins, 
but almost everybody who listens to rock and roll, whether they're 70 years old or they're 25 years old, knows the song, I Put a Spell on You. The song lives on and on and on. I get a, uh, a reminder uh, from Google, I guess it is, uh, every time that Screamer Jay Hawkins is mentioned in a news story, and it's not so much that Screamer Jay Hawkins is mentioned in a news story once a week, it's that somebody new is recording I Put a Spell on You somewhere yeah. in America or around the world. A lot of people uh, have covered that, right? I mean, I think the Cramps covered it, Marilyn Manson covered it, uh, anyone else super famous? Uh, the most famous version of I Put a Spell on You, oddly enough, is by Nina Simone. Wonderful musician. Right. So she changed the whole nature. That, so that's how versatile that song is. She changed the whole nature of it because it was a wild raucous of a song, just craziness. And she made it into sort of a romantic ballad. So that's how adaptable that song is. And I mean, there are other versions. Uh, a number of British bands have recorded it. Punk bands have recorded it. I think it. Diamanda Galas did a version. Is that correct? Who? who? Diamanda Galas, the uh, multi octave uh, goth singer from the 80s. I thing. think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. But that sounds like something you would know more than I, I would. I'm a goth. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. So, so that's how. You know, if Nina, could, Nina Simone could sing it, uh, uh, the British bands of the 60s can sing it, and a goth band in, what, the, the 90s, 2000s can sing it, Yeah. then it, it's a versatile song. So, who so was, everybody who was, knows the song, yeah. but, you know, people aren't aware of the fellow who sang it, who was equally as bizarre as the song he has sung he sung originally and that's uh screaming jay hawkins and you can tell that he was a little off center because he recorded professionally as screaming jay so this was a time everybody uh in the 50s so this song came out in 56 so you were chuck berry or you were elvis presley or if you were really out there, you were a little Richard or 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 somebody. But <clears throat> Screaming Jay, that was that was yeah. Somebody he, he, he was definitely more out there than than Little Richard, and uh, at least in my opinion. And but what was it? What was it about him? Well, let's stay on this. I mean, like, who was he? Maybe talk a little bit about his biography, where he came from, some of the challenges that he faced, and what his you know who he was. If you can give kind of the audience a, a sense of that. So Screamin' Jay came out of Cleveland, and he was raised by a foster parent. And this is where it gets weird, because I have to remember my, my, my own book. I think he was one of four children. He always claimed he was one of seven, but I think in actuality, he was one of four. And um, the mother kept the other three, but she had a... They, they didn't have a lot of money. I, I don't want to say they were impoverished, but, you know, they were close to the edge. And the mother felt that economically she couldn't raise four children 
So uh, uh, Screaming Jay was uh, raised by a foster parent, but that was down the street. So the mother would still visit Screaming Jay as he was raised by another woman. However, Screaming Jay never got over the fact that his mother didn't raise him. And he harbored that grudge all his life. And so he was an angry guy for almost all his life. He had many, many weird quirks. First of all, he was a very good musician and he could play almost any instrument. And uh, so he was versatile. I could play uh, a horn or a piano uh, or the electric guitar. So he was very good. But he, he, he had these very bizarre quirks. And I don't want to get political here, but he was like uh, a very well-known politician who had trouble with the truth. Uh, Screaming Jay could barely utter three sentences with, without one of them being a falsehood. And he was always telling stories about his life to reporters. And the story sort of never jived with a story he told somebody else. Most famously, he he, uh, he enlisted, if I remember correctly, around 46. He was born in 29. So it was around 45 or 46, but he missed World War II. And according to everything that I found, uh, he served for six years. And... Uh, I think he missed the Korean War as well. However, if you interviewed him, he was a hero of either World War II or the Korean War, and he often got confused which war he was the hero <laughs> of. Okay. But, uh, but I, I think uh, an earlier interview uh, interviewer got him to say he was in like the band of the, the armed services. So he wasn't actually on the front lines at any point missed world war ii probably missed korean war but it didn't stop him but uh, uh, from telling the most fanciful stories ever of his heroism in either war so he had trouble with the truth that was uh, uh, a problem with screaming jay so that, that's interesting to me because you know, he kind of comes out of nowhere and does this song, I Put a Spell on You, and many, many others. He had a long career. But there's always been this, you know, there was always this element of the occult to Screaming Jay Hawkins and this element of, you know, maybe voodoo or some type of, you know, mysterious thing going on. Although I'm sure, well, please, I mean, definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it was pretty much show business. But he's definitely this trickster character that kind of doesn't fit in with his time, doesn't fit in with anyone around him and just kind of comes out of nowhere to change rock and roll forever. And, and in many ways, and I'm not the only person to have said this. I mean, I was doing a bit of reading before this interview. You know, a lot of people say that he invented goth rock almost ahead of time. Um, you know, maybe there wouldn't be an Alice Cooper without Screaming Jay Hawkins. There wouldn't be a Bauhaus or a Marilyn Manson or or any of these things. Um, that's that's uh that's very accurate, I, I would say. You know, the whole performance art. Uh, I'll, I'll address your occult uh, uh, mm -hmm. statement as well. But let me just go back to performance art where, uh, you know, starting in the 50s, if you went to a rock and roll concert and all the rock and roll concerts were the same, uh, 
the impresario would uh, assemble about a dozen famous names and they would all tour together. And, uh, you know, the first guy would get up, sing two songs, sit down. The next group would get up, sing t- two songs, sit down. And, and it'd be like that uh, for all the stars, the 12 stars on, on the show. And they would tour by bus and they go around the country. And sometimes they'd have to do two or three shows a day like this. So it wasn't as it is now where you go to a concert, it's some major band or major singer, uh, just one person. Maybe they have an opening act, maybe not. You know, you go see Taylor Swift, you're going to see Taylor Swift. And she may or may not have an opening act. But in the 50s, the first ever rock and roll concerts were aggregations of all these bands. And, mm. um, and and that was the format. And then and it was it wasn't even Screaming Jay's idea. It was Alan Freed. Alan Freed was the uh, most famous disc jockey in the country in the mid 1950s. And and that's because when he was in Cleveland, the home of Screaming Jay Hawkins, he uh, first uh, had one of the earliest as a white DJ uh, late night shows that played just rhythm and blues music. And this rhythm and blues music would eventually turn to rock and roll. And people say, oh, Alan Freed invented rock and roll, but he didn't. He just invented the name rock and roll. He just borrowed it from what was going on out there. Anyway, Alan Freed goes to Screamin' Jay one night at one of these shows before before the show begins, and he says, I have a de- an idea for you. Uh, so he has this uh, crazy, crazy song out, I Put a Spell on You. And Alan Freed says to him, why don't you emerge from a coffin to sing it? And, 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 mm-hmm. and uh, Screaming Jay, Jay goes, oh, you know, black black guys, we don't we don't go to coffins, we don't do that. And then uh, Alan Freed, you know, puts his hand in a pot in his pocket, pulls out a wad of bills, and says, you know, here's a couple of hundred. You want to you want a, a big big show? Why don't you do this? And and and, and uh, Screaming Jay, when when the wad of bills in his hand gets big enough, he says, sure, I'll I'll do this. And so he does the, you might say, the first performance art in rock and roll, where to sing I Put a Spell on You, he emerges from a coffin. So, uh, so you know, other bands that sort of do that kind of performance art, uh, I mean, it all stems from that. But, that, but i got to take you back even further. Can I can so I jump in? Can I jump in real quick? Because sure. I don't want to lose yeah. your point, but it strikes me: was this before or after Screaming Lord Such in England? Because it sounds like Screaming Lord Such's act, and obviously the word "screaming" is in there. Uh, Screaming Jay, uh, I think it was the late fifties or early sixties, toured England. So his song "I Put a Spell on You" came out in fifty six. Uh, next year he. Uh, uh, there was a, a Screaming Jay album, and he appeared in one. No, he didn't. He was going to appear in one of the Alan Freed movies, and he didn't. Anyway, he tours England for the first time, and he meets Lord Such. Ah. And Lord Such uh, borrowed, you might say, uh, the whole act. Oh, so it was Screaming the other way around. 
Yeah. Lord oh, interesting. Okay. 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 Cool. That, that makes, uh, I guess, unfortunately makes a lot of sense. Yeah. For those who don't know, screaming Lord such was a, was an, I guess an act in, in at that time in England. And he was a guy who kind of dressed like Jack the Ripper and did the whole, you know, cramps before the cramps or the damned before the damned act and kind of came out and did the, uh, ghouls and goblins, uh, rock show. Yeah. There was another British performer at the same time who also stole, uh, Screaming Jay's act. Uh, I'm trying to think of his name, but his song was Fire. And, uh, it was actually, yeah. number one song. Was uh, it? the one where it's like, I bring you fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know which one you're talking about. Arthur Brown, Crazy World of Arthur Brown. Yeah, the Crazy World of Arthur Brown. That was it. Yeah, yeah. So Un- unfortunately, that song was that song was later played. Unfortunately, during the Christchurch shootings in New Zealand, and uh, uh, yeah, so it's got a bit of a bad, uh, bad, bad vibe now. But yeah, I know so, the song. Yeah. So, uh, but even uh, man, I, I just told you a story about the coffin, but. Uh, Screaming Jay was a very, I don't want to say crazy, over dapper, wild dresser, even then. So, but the question is, where did, where did he get that from? So now I'm going to tell you the story and, um, of how Screaming Jay began to look like Screaming Jay because he always had a wild looking act. And, uh, as you probably know, you know, he always came on stage with a cane that had a skull on top of the cane. And he would talk to that skull and the skull had a name. Uh, sometimes the skull would be smoking a cigarette when he came out. <laughs> so that was all part of his act. So he's in Cleveland. And, and I remember, I'm talking about Alan Freed. So Alan Freed has this first show. uh, uh that was dedicated to R&B and it was really uh, uh, targeted to white teenagers, not necessarily black teenagers. It's around 1952. It's Cleveland. He has this this, uh, ridiculous uh, radio DJ patter. Uh, He calls his show like the Moondog show and he's playing all this great R&B and he decides to have a concert in Cleveland. And if he didn't invent the word uh, rock and roll, Alan Free definitely invented the first rock and roll show. So he has, and he sets the format. So there's going to be about eight acts, and it's going to be at the uh, the Veterans or Coliseum or something in Cleveland, a venue that was big enough to sit 10,000 people. And he calls his show the Mundo Coronation. It's 1952. Uh, one of the stars, headliners of that show was a guy called Tiny Grimes. And the show, just be, as the show is getting ready to unveil that night in Cleveland, 20,000 Cleveland area teenagers show up scaring the daylights out of the local police <laughs> who fear there's going to be a mob scene. The first act barely gets through one song where the police close the whole thing down. So Alan Free not only invents the first 
rock and roll show, but he has the first rock and roll riot, <laughs> which wasn't actually a riot, but the police thought it was. That's quite credential. That's a lot. Of, that's good credentials right there. Yeah. So when Tiny Grimes leaves town, Screaming Jay Hawkins go, goes with him. Now, Screaming Jay Hawkins was married and had children, but he just gets in the car and leaves with Tiny Grimes heading back to New York. Now, Tiny Grimes had been a around a while. He was a very uh, esteemed musician. He played with a lot of uh, the beat jazz uh, musicians. Uh, he, you know, he had some uh, moderate hits in the '40s, but he tries to stay up with the times, and he creates a band called the Rockin' Highlanders. So it's four or five black eyes all dressed in tartans with Tams and the Scottish skirts, whatever. They even do a rockin' version of the traditional Scottish song, Loc Lamond, You Take the High Road, I'll Take the Low Road song. And, uh, and, and it was a funny bit. And they were crazy. They were wild, and they were rivaled. And Screamin' Jay Hawkins joined the group, and he learned how to put on not only sing but learn how to put on a crazy show and dress weirdly playing with tiny grinds and then uh, he sort of took that with him when he went out on his own and played with other bands you know he played with uh, a lot of esteemed people like Fats Domino uh, for a while and but you know when he started to record, and this goes back to your uh, question about the cult, mm. he had two themes basically uh, in many of his early songs, and he wrote most of his own songs. One was wine, and that was a popular motif in R and B in the early 1950s. Everybody had a everybody had to have a booze song, mostly a wine song, and so. Uh, early Screaming Jay Hawkins songs before I put a spell on you had wine in it. <laughs> was this still the, the was this still the fifties well, or was this in the sixties now? No, we're still in the fifties. We're, we're still in the, the very 50s. early fifties. We're Interesting. before okay. the advent of rock and roll. We're in like oh wow, 50, okay, fifty-three. Okay. So and the, his other theme was sort of the I wouldn't call it a cult, but it was more voodoo-ish. So it would be songs like, I'm trying to think of his early songs, but he did have one. Uh, so one of his early songs was Baptize Me in Wine. But another early song was I Put the Whammy on You. Mm. So he had uh, a tendency to write these sort of, oh, it was called She Put the Whammy on Me. So he had a tendency to uh go off in this direction as well. Um, again, it was more voodoo-ish than uh, the occult. That's probably your thinking of it. Well, let's talk about that then. I, I want to focus in on that. So let's talk about Voodon. Um, and that is very interesting to me because there's obviously such a through line of African traditional music to um, unfortunately, slave music to Voodoo music in the New World and also back in Africa. 
and then into rock and roll. And you have things like, for instance, Robert Johnson selling, you know, allegedly selling his soul at the crossroads, which is a very, very Voodoo thing. Um, not with the devil, but with the, the Loa. And then you have Screamin' Jay Hawkins, who is clearly adopting elements of Voodoo for his stage act. But my question, I guess I have a twofold question there. One is, what are your thoughts on that in general? And then my second is, I get the sense with Screamin' Jay Hawkins that it's probably pretty much all showbiz, but maybe there's another element to that to it as well. And I'm just curious about all of that. Well, you know, it, it really is all showbiz, but nobody else was going in the same direction as Screamin' Jay Hawkins. So he was so idiosyncratic. And again, he wrote a lot of his own tunes that uh, he his songs were di- so different from anybody else who was recording at the time. Remember, the R&B had, in the early 50s, had sort of smoothed out to doo-wop. Doo-wop was a, a group sound, and there was a lot of old chestnuts got, that got redone as doo-wop format, and they were all... Otherwise, they were uh, novelty songs or love songs. But nobody <laughs> was doing whatever was in uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins' head at the time that he would, you know, write these songs. So uh, he had his, whatever channel he, he was uh, tapped into, it was his own and not anybody else's. So we can say it's, you know, it was for showbiz, but at the same time, it wasn't because mm. uh, some of these songs were clearly, they're bizarre today, but they were really out there. So when, when, you, when you say they weren't showbiz, what do you mean by that? What is it that you think that he was tapped into that, that transcended that? Well, because he, he was such an angry guy throughout his life. If if he had to go to a show, uh, to do a show, and they would say, okay, we got to do this, we got to do this, and we got to do this, then he wouldn't do it. He would just do his own thing. He, uh, if he, uh, he, had, he had a song, uh, probably his second most famous song. It's called Constipation Blues. Yeah, I love that song. <laughs> it's, well, about, yeah, it's about so real, pain, back, real pain. Real <laughs> pain. <laughs> Let it go, let it go, uh, <laughs> whatever he's saying at the time. So sometimes he'd be booked into uh, uh, sort of a middle-of-the-road venue. Uh, one time he was booked into a, a supper club, you know, and, and and a lot of people were old, older than his normal crowd. And his band was saying, let's, let's not do um, Constipation Blues. But, you know, Screaming Jay would start off with Constipation Blues. How did that play Scare. with the audience? Do you have any records of that? I'm sorry, what was the question? I guess that for those who for those who don't know that song, you should definitely look it up on YouTube, but it's it's a song about it's a blues song about being constipated because he said uh, no one's ever written a blues song about real pain. Um how, but my question was how does how did that song play with the audience? Is there any any record of that? Well, the I know that story because one of the the person who actually told me to write, told me that I should write a book about Screamin' Jay Hawkins 
was a guy named Mike Armando, and he played in the backup band Screaming Jay through the 70s. And he would tell me these odd stories about Screaming Jay. And he told me that story about Screaming Jay, the band saying, you know, let's calm down here. Let's not do anything crazy. And Screaming Jay says, we're going to start off with Constipation Blues. And by the time they were done, half the people in the audience had left. Okay. But he didn't mind doing that. He didn't mind insulting people. So he was always contrary. I'll just give you another story. So <clears throat> after I put a spell on you, he, he couldn't find another hit. It just, um, even when he went out outside his own songs and, uh, the most famous uh, songwriting team in the early fifties for rock and roll, they wrote jailhouse rock and, uh, songs like that was Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Mm-hmm. And they wrote a song just for Screaming Jay called Alligator Wine. And, uh, couldn't, I mean, he was, couldn't even sell that. So, uh, he, you know, he's, he, he's gigging with di- different people. He, he's, uh, still has a name. He's still getting on rock and roll shows and, uh, Red Top Records, which was really a middle of the road, uh, teen idol kind of label says, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll sign you. Uh, we'll record a couple of songs and see what happens. So it's, it's, it's a, 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 a vanilla type label. And so what does he record for them? Probably his second most uh, uh, infam- infamous song, not as fam- famous, but second most infamous song after Constipation Blues, and that's Armpit Number 6. <laughs> okay. What's the story behind that? So at the time, and I think there's still a perfume called Chanel Number no. 5. And, yes. uh so instead of Chanel number five, this was armpit number six. And, okay. And that's what he recorded for Red Top. This song, nobody was ever going to release this song. Certainly not Red Top record. So he would, he was always doing something contrary. Well, this is interesting uh, because I feel like this is very endemic with geniuses. They, they are constantly contrary to the point of their own detriment and then tend to blame fate or society. Uh, for not giving them a hand up, but they're kind of sabotaging their own success at every, at every turn. And it sounds like that might be something that he was suffering from. Although, you know, I'm sure any, all the, all of the songs you've mentioned are infinitely more interesting than anything else, that, you know, that I can think of being recorded at that time. So. Yeah. So, and I would agree with you. I, he, he continually sabotaged his career and, and, and remember, I told you a story about him not telling the truth. It was always difficult. Yeah. So no matter how good you were to Screaming Jay, if you did a favor for him, if you married him, if you put him in a movie, uh, anything kind, if you lent him money, he would still lie to you. Mm. Matter of fact, sometimes you got the bigger lie. If you were nice to him, you got the bigger lie. Uh, and I'll just give you another example. So in when his, so he, he had been down and out for a while, but in the eighties, the punk band sort of discovered him and he had a, a career resurgence and independent movie maker, Jim Jarmusch put him in. Uh, first he did a whole movie, uh, 
with the theme, I Put a Spell on You. So it was an independent movie. It was called, I got to find it. Stranger Than Paradise. Yeah. Yeah. Very famous. And then he actually put uh, Screaming Jay in a movie, and Screaming Jay was very good in it. And it was called Mystery Train. It was about a sort of a flea bag hotel in Memphis. Yeah. Named after the Grail Marcus book, I think, right? I think so. Yes. And uh, so Screaming Jay plays somebody at the welcoming desk, you know, who, you know, takes the name, reads them, gives them a key, et cetera. And uh, two of the people that who come in are Japanese. And Screaming Jay goes to Jim Jarmusch and he says, oh, I don't know how I, I, I can work with with these Japanese, uh, considering my uh, war record with, with uh, and then he's confused because it's either the Japanese or Koreans, because whichever story he's telling. Uh, and, you know, I, I have trouble with Asians. I don't know if I can work with these two oh, Japanese boy. actors. Uh, also negating the fact that he was married for 20 years to a woman of Philippine descent. So yeah. here's Jim Jarmusch giving him the, the, the break of a lifetime. He's putting him in a movie and he's giving Jim Jarmusch the usual screaming Jay bullshit. And then he says, okay, okay, you know, I'll work with them. <laughs> but he has to go through all the, the nonsense first. Yeah. So what do you think that was? I mean, you've mentioned that he's a, he was a really angry person and clearly he was self-sabotaging and uh, it, it sounds perhaps patholo- to a pathological degree. Um, and he was constantly lying to everyone. Uh, I mean, that's more, th- this, this sounds to me like oh, actually a lot more than the run of run of the mill kind of rock star bullshit. Uh, this sounds like something serious was going on. Yes, and somehow he made it all work for a lifetime. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, well, it, it didn't work for a lot of times. A lot of times he was quite impoverished. Uh, again, sabotaging. If he had to appear on a bill with another group, he'd fight the people to be the, uh, the closer or the, you know, the premier act of the bill. Uh, so he was always in squabble with other, other people. Uh, and, uh, and th- this was sort of a lifetime uh, of, of fighting with others. Uh, he, he never really calmed down. And I'll get to the, uh, the ultimate Screaming Jay ploy. So he's on tour in Australia. And it's a long tour. And uh, he'd sh- show up at a club. And he'd find out ahead of time. Uh, if the club was sold out. Now he's already gotten paid. So, but he'd show up at, at the club and say, I never got paid. Now, the poor fellow who owns his club in, uh, Wobegon, Australia, wherever, uh, what's he going to do? He has a club full of people. Screaming Jay is there, but Screaming Jay saying he's he never got paid. So the poor club owner has to fork over the money. Again, so in fact, Screaming Jay was double dipping. You know, he'd get paid, say he didn't, but poor own, club owner said, you know, Screaming Jay wouldn't. I goes, I'm not getting on unless I get my money first. So that's the way. So, but then he got caught out on that. 
by the tour operator and he, and he left Australia. But this was a, a, a something common that, that uh, Screaming Jay would do. Mm-hmm. And you might say, okay, so he, he's pulling this stunt to get more money. But the promoters back then, they were a sleazy bunch. Rock and roll was a very... I don't think that's changed much. <laughs> yeah, it was a very sleazy game. And uh, promoters would steal money. Um, the record companies would put their names on the record so they can get royalties. Even Alan Freed forced his name on on some records so he can get royalties. It was a very sleazy business. So we're talking. We're still talking about the fifties here, right? Yeah. So I want to. I want to pause. I want to pause for a second. Last, what was that? I want to pause on that for a second. Sure. Um, sure. I want to. So many details of this time period are emerging from everything that you're saying. And I really wanted to pause for a second and really focus on what that world was like, because it's so different from the world now, particularly all these details of the music industry that you're sharing. But there's all, all these other dynamics um, at play. So even when you're talking about riots, things like this, um, I want to get a sense of you know, because this is something that we just take for granted that we understand. But that moment when rock and roll came into the mainstream um, and what that was like. And, you know, the, clearly there, you know, it's a it's a story about it's also a story about race relations in America and England. Um, you know, there were uh, and I was reading about Screaming Jay Hawkins that actually he caught a lot of flack from the the NAACP about his act that they thought it would set black uh, black people back. Um, but there's, this is just such this moment of collision of cultures. And, you know, even when you were talking about like the riots and the cops, um, you know, and then things like with Lord such stealing his act, uh, the Rolling Stone stealing black music, there's so many kind of sociological undercurrents to the stuff that you're talking about and racial undercurrents. And I wanted to maybe just take a moment to talk about kind of like what what those d- dynamics were like, what that time was like, and how that played out in the music industry, which sounds very different from what we understand now, and also not different. But So there were two things going on in America in the 50s. And, uh, and why, do we, why am I focusing on the 50s? Because in 1955, there was a, a movie called The Blackboard Jungle. It was a, a, a violent teen movie. And that movie opened up with a song called Rock Around the Clock. And this was kind of the purest form of rock and roll that, that no, nobody had ever heard before. Mm. And it was such a popular movie that that, that song not only sort of uh, crossed over to white, let's say, white America, because it was a very segregated world. So that was white America's first big blush with uh, what would become rock and roll. Elvis Presley would hit in 1956. That's when he would have uh, his first biggest hit. That was 1956. So rock and roll really hit America in 55 and 56. But what was happening before that on the pop stations, the pop stations were still uh, really 
playing mediocre music. It was all the, so in, in the 40s, uh, it was the big bands, and then the big bands would have a singer, and uh, and this singer was more or less what we call crooning. They, you know, they would see these <coughs> lush ballads, and, and the biggest name in crooning was Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. So he was, Frank Sinatra was the gold standard of crooners. So that, that all began in the World War II years in the 40s. But in the 1950s, that was still the main uh, stream of what was played on the mainstream radio stations in the 50s. And it was void of any creativity uh, and, and, and it was frankly boring. So the teenagers, and we're talking mostly the white teenagers now, were seeking different music and they would find these rhythm and blues stations. Many of them were at night and, um, uh, and they'd listen to the R&B music. What was happening in the music world was there was such a dearth of creativity for the, for these songs, these uh, uh, pruning songs that dominated the radio, that the white singers would hear these R&B songs and copy them. So there was a, which was called covering. So they covered the R&B song as a white song. So that was what was going on in, uh, in the 1950s. There was such a lack of uh, creativity in the white world of, of music that uh, they would look to other sources. So basically, they, they were just ripping off black music and stealing from black they people. Were, but they, yeah. they started by ripping off the country music. That's where in the oh, late forties. That's interesting. They started ripping off the country music because the, you know that was the easiest place to go. And then by the fifties, they started ripping off the black music. Just what you were saying. So that became an issue uh, in the nineteen fifties. So. Uh, so when I got there, there were two things going on in the fifties. First of all, it was the really an intense era, era of Jim Crow. It was a segregated, segregated world. Uh, there was the, the world of black people and the world of white people, and and really the two rarely crossed over. And then rhythm and blues to rock and roll happened. And at least in the entertainment industry, things started to merge. I want to I want to talk about that real quick. I mean, I I don't want to derail you. I want to keep going with what you were saying. But when we talk about segregation, this is another thing that I want to dig into, because this is another thing that people kind of like pay lip service to and, and perhaps pass over. And obviously, you know, in America and the world, we've because of uh, the politician you mentioned, we have undergone um uh, unfortunately, a very racist time. Um, but um, I wonder if we really have a sense of what segregation was like for people who didn't live through that. I think and anything you want to say about that, about what that was like on a day to day lived basis, that would be great. And I mean, even to the point where, you know, I, I don't want to underestimate how big of a moment it was that I would say a black music came basically black music came into white people's consciousness at that time. Um, but that, that, and then that 
dovetailed in a way with segregation, but there were all these undercurrents of co-option and you have and and using it and, you know, people like Elvis or the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, perhaps sanitizing it uh, in their mind or in in the radio DJ's minds for white kids. And, that you know, and then they went off to make all the money and the people that they stole from got nothing, which is a very old story. Right. So. Now I'm a white guy. I'm an old white guy. So, but I grew up in the fifties and, uh, in the fifties, uh, especially throughout the South, uh, the world was entirely segregated and there were many things black people could not do, could not walk the street at night. That, that was outlawed in some towns. Uh, they could not go to a park if white people were at, the, were at a park. This is in the South. They could not go there because white people did. Uh, by uh, regulation, they could not uh, be in the same club, uh, entertainment entertainment venue, if black people were there. Or white people couldn't be there if black people were there. Black people couldn't be there if white people. And you couldn't use the same bathrooms. Uh, you couldn't, uh, black people often couldn't stay in hotels across America. They had to stay in uh, their own hotels. Uh, uh, in the South, they, you know, the South repressed the blacks, so many of them lost voting rights. And that was just the South, but it, in the North, things weren't much better. You know, if you were in a big city, there were black neighborhoods and there were white neighborhoods. And, you know, it rarely the, the twain met. And there were always uh, violence against black people. So it was a very tough time. This was the Jim Crow era of America. And, uh, and blacks just didn't have the same rights as white people throughout the country. And, and you were kind of technically allowed to discriminate across America. So uh, when you know, white teenagers started to listen to black music, that was a big deal because they... And, but, but they did so because the white music was so terrible. You, you had to find really where, where the cutting edge was, and the cutting edge was R&B. But I want to I just go back one other thing about the 50s. Mm-hmm. So teenagers in the 30s, that was the Depression. Teenagers in the 30s had to go to work because uh, everybody needed to work in the Depression. There was no money. So teenagers were comes the 40s, it's World War II, teenagers now had to enlist or be drafted, and they went off to war. War's over in 45. Uh, the new teenagers coming up, let's say you were 13 in 1950 or 14 uh, in 1950, a young teenager in, in, in the 50s. What was happening the teenagers, that segment of the population had swelled, even though, uh, uh, you know, we were in war and we were in depression, you know, people still had babies. And but those new teenagers didn't have to go to war. They could stay in school. They didn't have to, you know, find a job or support the family farm or whatever. And America discovered teenagers like they never existed before so 
Well, from my understanding, even the phrase teenagers was created by ad agencies during that time because it was a new, um, a new market with disposable income for the first time. Another since like the twenties or thirties and, uh, like, but it became a thing in the, in the fifties and, uh, with teenagers came, uh, you know, rock and roll music and all these things that scared their parents. But there was, uh, an, uh, uh, the entertain, the entertainment industry discovered teenagers and, you know, they would, uh, uh, pump out a steady stream of horror movies, for example, and, uh, monster movies. But then there were the, uh, more violent teenage gang movies. Yeah. And that was also, a it's, it's so funny that all that stuff is so funny in retrospect, but yeah, I guess it was frightening at the time. So, and parents were, I mean, there was this new thing, teenagers and parents didn't know how, Oh, what's my teenage? Everybody was worried about teenagers. They, they're, you know, gang behavior or they're listening to, uh, black music. So everybody was fearful of teenagers in the 1950s because it was like the world just discovered there was such a thing as teenagers. So, uh, the, the first, before the black, we talked about black or jungle, but before that, there was wild one with, uh, Marlon Brando as a, uh, you know, head of a bike game that invades a small town. So that was an extremely popular movie with teenagers. So, uh, so there was that. And was then that, there was that was, the wild ones? Yeah, the wild ones, right. And then there was Blackboard Jungle. And then there was the James Dean movie, uh, with Natalie Wood. Oh, it's, it escapes me now, which was also, uh, Rebel Without a Cause. That's it. Rebel Without a yeah. Cause. Also immensely popular with teenagers. They were so popular that these uh, movie studios would would start pumping out, uh, you know, like uh, teenage movies uh, made for about $100,000, which was even then it was nothing. And then they would play on the drive-in theaters. <laughs> so... Um, and, and drive-in theaters were a big deal because teenagers were driving now. They didn't have their own cars in, in the 30s and the 40s. But in the 50s, they, they wanted cars. and But there was no place to take your girlfriend if you wanted to uh, to make out or, or more. So they all went to drive-ins. And you, you see these uh, B&C movies on the screen, but nobody cared because they're all... <laughs> Right. Huddled up in the back seat or something. So that was teenage life in the fifties. Got it. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's just such a different time. And I feel like the fifties are a time that are just brushed over and glossed over so much and kind of even more than, um, I don't know, some caricature of the sixties or something like that. It's just, um, there's not a whole lot of attention paid to them, although it's clearly, like the critical moment of the 20th century in certainly in American pop culture um, and this moment where everything changes. And I suspect that it, the fifties were a lot darker and there was a whole lot um, much, much darker undercurrents going on of um, like you say, segregation of racism of the fears of, 
you know, white people being afraid of black people and teenagers and, and also just, you know, alcoholism, trauma from the war, uh, all of this stuff that, you know, it's always, always portrayed as this Aussie and Harriet kind of world. But, um, it, it seems to me that it, the fifties were, were kind of phenomenally dark, um, and, uh, sinister in some ways. So, uh, I, it was, and, but, you know, if people think of everything really big, bursting out in the 60s, the music, the protests, Martin Luther King, uh, hippies, all that, uh, Summer of Love in 1967. But everything had precedent, and that was all this began in the, in the 50s. So if you think of uh, the 60s, the hippies, well, there were the beats in the 50s. They were, uh, quote, unquote, the nonconformists, mm-hmm. and that was a big issue. Uh, do you conform? That was a big issue in the fifties. Uh, you know, are you, are you conforming to the, uh, the Eisenhower type middle America of the world? Uh, and the beats who preceded the hippies said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to, you know, hang out, uh, in uh, places like the East village or San Francisco and, uh, smoke weed. Uh, nobody smoked weed in the fifties, but you know, and uh, you know, go to play our bongos or whatever they did in the fifties. So there was an element of uh, people who were different, who were trying to take the world in a different way, and uh, that includes uh, uh, the uh, the black movement to, to integrate America. That all began in the fifties as well, and a lot of the key. You know, Brown versus education that all happened in the 1950s. So 60s get all the credit, but it just didn't go from egg to adult in the 60s at all. Really started in the 1950s. And uh, I'd just like to bring that up. So, Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, why, why don't we bring it back to Screaming Jay Hawkins and yeah, yeah, got some good context say. and uh, yeah. just how he how he moved through this time. So I should tell you the story then of how I put a spell on you got recorded and why it's such a monumental record, which, of course, it is all by accident. So Screaming Jay had uh, come east with Tiny Grimes. And then left Tiny Grimes and he played with a number of, uh, fairly well known, uh, bands at the time, including Fats Domino and his band. And, um, he got to know a lot of people in the recording industry back east in the sort of the New York, Philadelphia area and a lot of sort of great musicians. And he was able to, scare up uh, uh, some recording uh, contracts. So he did his first recordings uh, around, I'm guessing around 53, 54. I think Baptize Me in Wine was 1954. So these were small labels, but it it was his first time uh, in a recording studio, recording under his... uh, his real name was Jalacy, J-A-L-A-C-Y. And then he, he became Jay Hawkins and, and finally screaming Jay Hawkins. And uh, so he knew a lot of good musicians. And 
I think it was OK or OKEH. That was the label. And uh, he was brought in to do some recording. And one of the songs uh, the producer wanted to record was I Put a Spell on You. <clears throat> but at that time, I Put a Spell on You uh, was a ballad. So when the song was first conceived by Screaming Jay Hawkins, it was a ballad where it ended up with Nina Simone. But at the time, but uh, the producer thought there was more to I Put a Spell on You than just being a ballad. He wanted uh, something new out of that song. And he wasn't getting it in the recording session. Now, it wasn't that uh, Screamer Jay had just found some musicians. Uh, the musicians that went in there, and he was going to record four songs, basically two what were called 45s at the time. You know, 45 uh, was how you uh, a teenager uh, heard music. They either heard it on the radio or they bought uh, this small platter uh, 40, it went at 45 RPMs it was called the so that, that was a single it was a single record yeah so yeah. it was a the A side was the whatever the A song was and on the back was the B so they were going to record four songs for what could be uh, two singles you might say but it was so there was always an A and B side so it was actually four songs so they're doing uh, I Put a Spell on You, and uh, the producer's not happy. It was all flat. And he says, let's take a break. And uh, and, the, and he comes back with like a, a bucket of chicken and, and plenty of uh, booze. So the musicians, and they, and these, again, I, I want to make, these weren't just pickup musicians. Uh, in this recording session, he had some of the best, uh, studio musicians in New York with him. Oh, in really? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm just—I was just surprised by that. But he—he yeah, he, he was like blackout drunk when he recorded that, right? Right. Yeah. So this—this this is what happened. So uh, one of the musicians was Mickey Baker, and he was the Eric Clapton of his time. I mean, if you wanted the best electric guitar musician at your recording you got mickey baker now mickey baker had a moment of fame uh he teamed up with a, a a female singer they became mickey and sylvia and they had this big song called love is strange uh major major hit in the mid 50s and uh it was featured in the movie dirty dancing if you remember that one but anyway mickey baker's there and big al sears i mean he had major musicians they take a break, all, every, all of them. They take a break. They're, they're they're having their lunch, but they're drinking a lot. They're drinking gallons of, uh, uh, as uh, Screamy Jay would say, it was like Muscatel or some cheap wine. And by the time they're 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 getting ready to sing again, they're they're they're, they're drunk. They're they're flat out drunk. They could barely stand. But, you know, you pay for studio time. You got to record the song. Yep. <laughs> so uh, they record, I put a spell on you. And and uh, remember, it was originally a ballad. But in this version, 
screaming Jay is grunting and growling and snarling and making all these bizarre noises as he's singing. Uh, I put a spell on you. And it was really, uh, I don't want to overuse the word, but it was a very bizarre cut. Well, it's, it's got to be one of the all-time great rock and roll performances ever, right? Yes, I mean, it's, it it's so, I, I it's so iconic. Uh, and I didn't know until I did a little bit of reading for this um, podcast that he, he was drunk. I mean, it's like, it just sounds like he's channeling something from, you know, he's, he's channeling something completely uh, at odds with everything else that was out at the culture at the, out in the culture at that time. Yeah. And it was, uh, uh I mean, I, 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 I'd wait to say it's still a crazy record yeah. or small, even if you played it today. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. I think that's why it gets covered so much. It's, it's out of time in a way it stands outside of, it stands outside of the flows of pop culture in a way. And I think it's like you mentioned rock around the clock being kind of the, the, you know, the platonic essence of the rock and roll song. Well, I think that that one may be even more so. And I think that's why it has been so influential on just generation after generation of musicians. I mean, I think that one truly is a timeless record. Yeah. I mean, they, like I said, almost every week, I get a notification of somebody, many recording us. I don't even know. I've never heard of them. They're, they're so new. And they're all singing, I put a spell on you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect song, I think. So uh, what happened then, so the producers love the song, and, and they create, as you said, a single. Uh, but it, it, it scared. Remember, the parents were scared about their teenagers. <laughs> What and was the fear? What, what was the fear there? It really, do you think? Well, two things. First of all, teenagers were out of their control. So uh, that was a new phenomenon. Teenagers were not in their control. Uh, teenagers were listening to music that they didn't understand because they grew up on big band music in the 40s. Would, would you say that teenagers were out of control because of cars? They weren't actually, they weren't so much out of control, but Parents thought their teenagers were out of control. Okay, uh, they weren't. They were hanging out. Well, they had freedom of movement, like in, in a way that yes. nobody had before. And then you mentioned drive-throughs and you know people having sex in the back of these large cars that they later purposely made much smaller so people couldn't do that anymore. Um, anyways, just a bit of a tangent. Yeah. So yeah. So um, so anyway, they there was pressure on some of the radio stations not to play the song so uh, a lot of radio stations did not play i put a spell on you but it had a sort of a reputation by that song time <clears throat> and it still sold uh you know people say it sold a million copies uh which i have no i had no way of verifying that uh but it was an extremely popular record even though most radio stations would not play it because it, it was too extreme. And if they did play it, you know, parents would call in and, and complain and uh, advertisers said, Oh, we're not going to advertise if you play that crazy song. Uh, so it didn't get, uh, it, it missed a lot of radio stations, but by reputation, it, it sold a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, so, even to mention that song, I mean, it, it carries this totemic power with it. I mean, it's like the, one of the things I, or the many things I love about that song, it's just got this element of menace to it, this undercurrent of menace that I don't know what you could relate that to. I mean, maybe the Peggy Lee song Fever from 1958, but, you know, certainly more this song. You know, it's got this menace, this sexual menace, this elements, uh, this S, um, element of the occult of mind control of voodoo it's like all these things are perfectly wrapped up of possessiveness um and you can just you can just hear the entirety of like the goth genre in that song and i maybe i'm wrong but i can't think of any um songs from that time or earlier you know unless you maybe want to talk about kind of like Frank Sinatra implying mob connections or something like that, but they just have that element of menace to them. You know, it would be hard to find a song, uh, even today, that has that sort of atmospheric uh, sense of menace that you talk about. It, well, it, certainly it, today, I mean, everything is so, uh, you know, every, everything is so sensitive and, and sensitized now. And, and that, that song, you mentioned teenagers being out of control. It's like that song it rarely, I think, despite rock's pretensions truly feels like it's out of control. Like it's like, it cannot be controlled and something like very wrong is happening, but it's also, it's not just wrong. It's fascinating and enticing. Yeah. You know, it's one of those songs. I mean, sometimes you can get tired of the song, but I, I don't know if, you can get tired if I put a spell on you because uh, it sort of comes at you in in a, in a unexpected way. And then it's like nothing else you have ever heard. Mm-hmm. So uh, the evolution of I put a spell on you. So it, it's sold because of this reputation, even though it didn't get uh, played on the radio. And so that put the record company in a bind. How do we get, Screaming Jay Hawkins uh, across to the mainstream audience. Uh, how do we make people aware of Screaming Jay Hawkins? They didn't, they didn't know what to do. And uh, by the time they got to putting an album out, uh, they sort of sanitized them and they tried to sort of normalize them, you know, for the, for the big cover art of the album. And uh, the album itself was. Uh, a mixed bag of <clears throat> Screaming Jay Hawkins tune and old chestnuts that actually he liked to sing, you know, old songs from the 40s, but it really wasn't a, a cohesive album. And and then nothing he, he ever did again sort of worked uh, mm. for for America, for the American radio audience. Interesting. Yet he, you know, it's like, it's, it's funny how it's so often like that for, for artists. It's like, you know, they struggle their whole life and hone their craft and it's like, but they really just get that like lightning hits them like once or maybe twice. But that one time it hits for a great artist could change history, which, you know, or certainly change the course of art or pop culture or how people are seeing themselves um, and I think that's definitely the case with this song. So much comes out of it, but it's, I, I just have always found that just so interesting where it's like, you know, sometimes lightning just hits once and that that's all you get. But when it hits, it hits. Yeah. And that's 
pretty much what it was like for screaming Jerry Hogan. And, and, and it's not healthy or mentally healthy for the artist who mm. is going to struggle to find that next song, but can't. Uh, so you always wonder, sort of like, oh, the one hit wonder. Oh, well, he did this great one hit, but, you know, that poor artist, you know, had a lifetime to live and, you know, he's trying to find the next song and can never do it. So it, it must be. Uh, so it was discouraging to uh, Screaming Jay and, you know, it didn't help his anger issues. Hmm. So, uh, I mean, and no matter what they did, but again, he would sabotage. For example, uh, so teen movies. So we talked about the world of teens and um, other than the gang movies, uh, I'll bring back Alan Freed again. So Alan Freed said, okay, I'm going to um, make some movies uh, for teenagers. And uh, just like my shows, I'll spotlight, you know, three or four singers. And, and to Alan Freed's credit, he would put uh, black performers in his movies. It wasn't just, uh, you know, Bill Haley. He'd have uh, Chuck Berry in, okay. in, in his movies. And one of his earliest movies, and, and, and these were very popular uh, movies in the mid-50s. These were just for teenagers. And he was going to put, uh, Alan Freed liked uh, uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins. And, uh, and we mentioned that it was Alan Freed's idea to have him come out of the coffin. Uh, and that was pretty much one of the earliest big Alan Freed extravaganza shows. Alan Freed was uh, a rock and roll impresario besides being a DJ. And he'd have these great, great uh, big shows. Uh, it would run uh, the biggest theater in Brooklyn. And uh, he'd have uh, three of these shows a day. And, uh, uh, and he'd have like 15 performers. It, it, and the audience would be packed. They'd get them all out. The next, you know, the next audience would come in. They'd do the show all over again three times a day. It was the same at the Apollo uh, in Harlem. And, and anyway, um, so Screamer Jay was going to be in one of these uh, early Alan Freed movies. And Alan Freed always showed the best of these rock and roll performers that they were polite. They were, they were dangerous. They, they just were there to put out good music and the teens were lovely. So he was going to put uh, Screamer Jay in one of his early movies. And, and I, I couldn't figure out whether it was Alan Freed or the directors or Screamin' Jay's idea to come out dressed as some version of a uh, uh, bizarre African warrior of his own dreamlike making hmm. in, in a loincloth and a, a bone in his nose and uh, uh, rattles and, and things like that. But, and that session was uh, recorded, but it was so bizarre that they cut it out. So, you know, why, why would you do that to Screaming Jay Hawkins unless, uh, because it just didn't fit the movie and nobody was going to put that into a movie. It was, it was kind of, uh, uh, uh self-racious, you might say. Yeah. Well, there's so such so obviously an element of of racism to that. But then the flip side that I wanted to ask you about 
is uh, he was also um, disliked by the end uh, excuse me, the NAACP at the time, if I remember. And there was kind of maybe some, you know, um, criticisms of minstrelsy, maybe. Uh, well, he, it wasn't so mis- minstrel, but, you know, he put a uh, bone in his nose. I mean, that's pretty charged. Yeah. And that was the key thing. I mean, it wasn't that he just dressed bizarrely and he had a smoking skull on uh, on his cane. But, I mean, the, the last offensive thing that he can do was have that bone in his nose, which he he didn't care what the NAACP said. He, he kept it. He kept mm. it just in spite it's, as part of his act. You know, there's a, uh, uh, I mentioned Mike Armando, who played with Screaming Jay in the 70s. And it was his idea to, um, for me to look into Screaming Jay's life and write the book. And after I came out with the book, he formed a band. You might call it a tribute band. And it was called, and it's called, and they still play, and they're really very good. The Resurrection of Screaming Jay Hawkins Band. That's the name of it. And they, they play a lot in the Northeast. And they have a guy, a really good singer, who does all the Screaming Jay, Jay shtick. He comes out of a coffin. Uh, when they do Constipation Blues, he sings it from a toilet. Uh, <laughs> But he also puts the bone in his nose, you know, has that, it's, kind of, it's a clip on, you know, it doesn't go through his nose. But he does all the screaming, screaming Jay Hawkins shtick. And it's a, a very good show. But there's the bone. <laughs> because people remembered that from scre- the, the original Screaming Jay shows. And that was, the, you know, the, the really the, the, a really offensive thing that the NAACP, that, whose whole objective hmm. was to improve the image of the black man in America. So, what was I that? Mean, what was that conflict? I mean, did they did? I mean, how did that go down? Were they talking directly, or you know, they? Uh, well, no, they would uh, uh, editorial pieces, uh, opinion pieces. Okay, the if they were interviewed for a newscast. They would talk about it. So there was, uh, I guess they tried to do public pressure. And what was his opinion of that? I mean, did he see that in racial terms or did he just see it as somebody trying to uh, tell him how to do his act? I mean, I I don't know. Well, it was all part of his contrary nature. Um, Mm. Somebody's telling me what to do. I'm going to do the opposite. Okay. Interesting. So, So why don't we talk about his influence? I mean, uh, you know, obviously that that song is immortal, but talk a little bit about the influence of Screaming Jay Hawkins on bands since bands now, maybe uh, the history of rock and roll and, and where it went. So, uh, sure. So after uh, I put a spell on you and number of years trying to sort of create a post song career, post one song, one hit wonder, if you will, uh, career. Uh, which really wasn't working out. Uh, the the way it worked, like for the, an Alan Freed show and all the other ship performers, if you were the star, you were at the top of the bill and you uh, closed the show. And then 
uh, everybody in, in, in the bill, uh, on down, uh, was, uh, the top people were the most important or had the most recent hits. And, uh, Screaming Jay would, would, would start, he started up near the top. And then, you know, in a couple of years, he was at the bottom of the bill. Bottom of the bill, you get poor placement in, in the shows. You got paid less. Hmm. It wasn't much of a career. And in the early 60s, after the Beatles. So you talked about Rolling Stones uh, copying the black music. Yeah. But uh, what happened was uh, in, in the late 50s, Bill Haley actually went to, to England. And he was equally as popular, perhaps more popular in England, because they were starving for rock and roll, teenagers there, as he was in the U.S., where he was beginning to fade already after 1956. And, um, and that spurred a whole interest in R&B in England, you know, R- uh, real, real R&B, not uh, uh, commercial, not doo-wop. Uh, but the real kind of R&B singers uh, and musicians. And uh, so that whole R&B craze uh, uh, took over a lot of the music, uh, uh, the, the real music aficionados in the UK. And it was a big deal to get, you know, old 78s. Those were even the bigger platters from the 40s in the thirties mm. of these, these recordings. So they, there was a, even more than the United States, there, there was really a deep interest in R and B, the original, the real R and B. Yeah. Well, that uh, was, I think it was related to the Northern soul. Yes. Which I think was a sixties thing. Okay. So, so um, then, but guys who were like uh, the members of the Beatles or, the members of the Rolling Stones, they were all part of that. Oh, look at this great R&B that's out. Look at these great tunes that you don't hear on the radio. So they knew uh, uh, those songs and uh, they would play them. And, and especially, I mean, the first, the earliest Rolling Stones songs before Satisfaction uh, were old R&B tunes. Like you said, they would you know borrow those old R&B songs and uh, make them sort of rock and rollish, and those were the first Rolling Stones songs. But anyway, there was a real uh, uh, affinity for this really core roots R and B in the UK, and in the early sixties, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins uh, was invited to play in the UK, and. Uh, you know, he was known by the core group of R&B fanatics, but not by the general public in uh, in the UK. So, but anyway, he played in a series of uh, small clubs. Uh, the tour worked out okay. He had problems with the promoter, as always, left in a huff, went back to the United States, but Everybody thought about it and said, well, you know, you really did a good job here. Let's invite him back again. So he came back and did another tour of, you know, small venues throughout the UK. 
But and, and some of the people, and we talked about Lord Such, uh, they were so impressed to have uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins that they pretty much sort of copied the act. And the same, uh, Lord Such uh, never, he was kind of a politician too, so he, he never really dedicated his whole uh, life to music. But then there was the crazy world of Arthur Brown, who had that uh, another one hit wonder. But it was a number one hit in the U.S., I think, and it was called Fire. Good song, but whatever happened to Arthur Brown after that. So, but by the mid-60s or late-60s, we started to see bands, like, really sort of dress up. Uh, they Almost as if they had a show. So it would be guys like Alice Cooper, the band Kiss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they really owed what they did, this performance art. Uh, besides good music, <clears throat> They, they, they sort of had a, a look and a show, but they really owe it, too. They really uh, did, yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at the, the Wikipedia forum, and they list, it says, you know, he in turn influenced rock acts such as Alice Cooper, Tom Waits, The Cramps, Screaming Lord Such, Black Sabbath, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Arthur Brown, Led Zeppelin, Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie, and Glenn Danzig. And I would say a whole lot more than that. Yeah, so... His influence kept going. So that was so. You, you take uh, uh, Kiss and, and you take Alice Cooper. That was one set of rock and roll where he influenced. But uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Revival, who played a different kind of rock and roll, uh, sort of country bayou rock and roll or Swamp rock and roll, you might Yeah, say. and they were Californians too, which makes it even funnier because they were doing Southern rock, but they were from California. <laughs> in right. And, you know, they, they did a, a I Put a Spell on You. That was one of their earliest records that they released as a single. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, it doesn't make a difference. I mean, and Danzig, nothing like, there weren't even anything like uh, Kiss. I mean, Danzig was punk. What, what, what was, I mean, it was a different world. Yeah. All right. Hope you really enjoyed that. We unfortunately got cut short uh, as Steve's internet went out. Uh, so there's no gentle end of that podcast, but I hope you really enjoyed it. And Thank you again to Steve Bergsman. All right. Don't forget to check out The Magic of Tarot, our brand new course with legendary author Lon Milo Duquette and all of our other almost 30 courses at magic.me, the world's best online school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, www.magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. I will see you in class and I will see you next time. Lots of love. Hang in there. See you soon.